excited to be here today. A um, little bit of a background about me is I originally am from Louisville. I grew up here in the Hurstbourne area and grew up Catholic. And my mom, when uh, I was in my 20s, started a Bible study at Southeast Christian Church. And she took me to it. And the woman that spoke there uh, was Lynn Reeves. And she stood on a podium. And when she talked, I saw her. I asked the Lord one day he'd do something similar in my life. Well, shortly after that, my mom and I got baptized together. That was 20 years ago this month. Something significant that happened in the meantime is after I got saved, uh, I, I thought I'd be in Kentucky and it would be this glorious adventure of speaking to other women and God using me and, uh, and making a difference for the kingdom. And I ended up in Atlanta, Georgia, working with uh, at a assistant, uh, was assistant at a at a Southern Baptist church down there. And, um, and the Lord called me. You hear stories about God calling people, uh, and He moves them. And that's what He did with me. And He, I remember I uh, was reading the Bible, and uh, it was in Matthew 28, I believe, that no one calls, uh, the, uh, no one follows God without losing family. Uh, and, and in the meantime, um, it, receiving eternal life. So anyway, so to summarize what he was speaking to me is that I knew I was going to have to leave my family. I didn't know what this was going to look like. And uh, shortly thereafter, I received a job to work with at-risk youth, uh, Latino uh, at-risk youth in, in Central California. And so I, I moved there uh, shortly after my grandpa died, shortly after I was saved. And um, I thought, well, I'm just going to be here for a little bit, but the Lord would have me there for 14 years. Uh, during that time, it was a very isolated experience. And uh, one of the darkest, hardest parts for me at that time was when I had children and I didn't have anyone to watch them. And in my town, uh, in Madeira, the, uh, I didn't have a lot of friends my age. So I needed help. I wanted friends. I desired ministry, um, and it, it really wasn't what my life looked like. And uh, I decided I was going to research and find a place that had this, and I found this church in Fresno. Uh, the director there was uh, Patty Crone of the women's ministry. And I went, and I said, well, if I can't teach, I'm going to sit under someone's ministry who can. And I sat in her ministry. When I arrived at that church, it was to see many there, godly women, and I felt like the heavens had parted. They watched my kids for me while I learned. And the study that we did was the book of Kings. So this, uh, this lesson is very significant to me because of the season that I was in when the Lord used it in my life. But this today is significant to me because for all that time, for 20 years, I've desired to speak to women. And here I am in this is possibly the first time my mom's heard me uh, speak, and she is here today, right here. She's my mom. So, uh, so that is why I'm emotional, and I cry at commercials, so this is to be <laughs> expected. Uh, but we're going to go ahead and get into this book. So First and Second Kings was originally written 
as one book, just like First and Second Samuel and just like First and Second Chronicles. There was more than likely one author, and it was likely written before the exile began, and it covers an over 400-year period of the royal history. This book is the end of the narrative that we started when we started this study in Genesis. Uh, excuse me, I'm going to go ahead and get a little more. In First and Second Samuel, we watched how God established Samuel as his prophet. A prophet is someone who speaks the very words of God and uh, on his behalf. And when he spoke, he was God's word, and it was his representative. God established Samuel as his prophet because, bef- because he was going to establish the, the throne. He was going to establish the monarch period. And here we see Saul, who, is, who God rejects, and along comes David. First and second Samuel shows David as a victorious king who unifies the 12 tribes of Israel. In David, we see a type of king that God wants on his throne. David is a man after God's own heart. What he wanted was God's glory more than his own. He wanted God's will more than his own. And what he did is he defended the covenant. And he did this God's way with a theocracy. We've heard Katie talk to us about how what God wanted was the big K, meaning God, and then the little K underneath him, establishing God's purposes. And what we saw in David was someone who trusted the Lord, contrasted by Saul, who wanted his own glory, his own will, and his own means. The next thing that we saw through David was that through his line, God promised there would come a messianic king. This king would fulfill the promises made to Abraham and establish God's eternal kingdom over the nations. We also saw the Davidic covenant and stated, If you obey me, you are blessed. If not, you are cursed. We saw that if the king was disobedient, the king and the people must be disciplined. And we also saw that this did not mean that God was going to revoke his plans to provide a seed through David. God told David in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. If you guys would just uh, bear with me for a moment, I'm going to go ahead. I realize I have not prayed, and as we get into kings, I would just like to do that. Dear Heavenly Father, Katie has prepared us uh, over these months to get to this place. Lord, before you and before these women, you know that on my own, I stumble, I cry, I say the wrong things at the wrong time, and that never have I stood behind a podium where I have not completely needed you. God, I ask right now that you would help me. You would help me make kings clear. And God, I ask that you would open the eyes and the hearts in this room so that they would receive this word. And God, I pray pray that we would walk out of here clear about the study, clear about this content, and more clear about your kingdom purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. So at the end of Samuel, Katie left us last week, and we saw David's sin. We saw that this is not the messianic king that God had promised. 
And Katie left, left us with this question. She said, is this going to be Solomon? And that is where we're at today. So our story begins in Jerusalem. This is the place that God had chosen for his name to dwell. David is old. His fourth son, Adonijah, exalts himself to make himself king. Bathsheba comes in and says, hey, you promised me, remember, that uh, Solomon is going to be king. We know this is necessary because of the Davidic line. David remembers, and he's going to charge Solomon, and this charge is most significant. First and Second Kings 2.1 says, When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man walking in his ways as it is written in the law of Moses that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you turn. What I want you to see from this is that Solomon knows the Lord from his father. He watched David as he worshipped God. David wrote the Psalms. Do you think he, when he was a baby, David was singing those songs to him? I like to think that he did. We also see that Solomon is someone who knows the law. David meditated on the law of the Lord. Solomon knew what was expected of him. David dies. What we see when Solomon comes to reign, the promises of Abraham almost established. The Lord comes to Solomon and asks him, what do you want? And we all know that Solomon says, give me wisdom. And wisdom of God, we are told, was with him to do justice. Hold that in your memory. The good in what's happening right now with Solomon in power is that it's God's people unified, because David brought unity when he brought the 12 tribes together. It's in God's place in Jerusalem, and they are living with God's blessing. They have peace. They have rest. God wants not only to bless his people, but he wants all nations around him to be blessed as well. And that is exactly what is happening as people travel from far away, the Queen of Sheba, to come and to hear what Solomon has to say. This is what God wants. And I know that he is just as excited about what's going on because he is his desire to bless the nations. Another thing that is happening is that there is centralized worship. To signify the greatness of this moment, the authors draw our attention to an extravagant, glorious temple, symbolic of where heaven and earth met in the Garden of Eden. Even what is drawn and what's done inside of this temple reflect the Garden of Eden. There's an elaborate ceremony with all of Israel present, and they bring up the ark. As the priests come out of the holy place, a cloud fills the temple. It tells us that this cloud is dark. It's representing a different dispensation than what we currently have. But it's God's glory taking up residence in this place. That means he's pleased. It's kind of like God saying, look, I'm satisfied with where you're at. I am with you. I am, I am here. This is the moment not just of kings, but perhaps the entire Old Testament. It is his people living for his glory. This is Solomon, a king who is reigning, and we have evidence that he has a heart for God. Nowhere do we see his heart more than when he offers an extraordinary sacrifice and prayer to the Lord. You know a person's heart when they pray. I don't know about you, but 
you know, I can, I, I mean, I know we're all, we all have off days, but if I hear someone pray, I know if they've been with the Lord. And what we see in Solomon's prayer to the Lord is that not only has he heard and learned about, uh, learned about God from his father, but that he personally knows him as well and even has a relationship. Not only that, it tells us in the beginning that Solomon did love the Lord. Solomon finishes his prayer and stands before all the people and says to them, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he has promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promises, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. He continues, Let your heart therefore be true to the Lord your God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. After the celebration, the people go to their homes. We are told that they are joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord has shown to David, his servant, and to Israel, his people. So far, we have a godly king leading God's people in God's place, God's way. For a moment, if ever in history, it looked like the true Davidic king. This is it. And Solomon had a fair chance at it. I think this right here is the height. God's going to come in because he knows what's going to happen. And he gives them an if-then-but-then promise. We all know, uh, with all the study we've done, that danger is looming. God says to Solomon, I have heard your prayer, and I've consecrated my house, meaning I've made this place holy. And if you walk before me with da- like David, then I'm going to establish your throne forever. But if you or your children turn aside and follow from following me, then I will cut off Israel from the land and the house that I have just consecrated. This house will become a heap of ruins. Solomon knows what it is that he is to do. His duty is to obey the Mosaic law, including but not limited to the instructions of the kings. We know that the three things he is not supposed to be doing is multiplying gals, gold, and giddy-up. The reason for many wives, at least it turned his heart away, the reason for excessive silver or gold was because he was meant to rely on God. They had just seen, I'm sure they passed down the stories of how God provided for them in the wilderness. They knew this, okay? Also, many horses. Why? Because they were to rely on God. If anyone would know of the military strength that God was able and the things that he did, it would be Solomon. His, David, his dad was David. He was the one that was victorious just before him. And then there was Joshua. God had proven himself to Israel that he was these things, and Solomon would know the thing they were sup- he was supposed to be doing during this time is to read, copy, and carry the law. That would be his strength, just like it is ours. The king shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. That is what he was going to do to protect his heart. But we have a change of scene because as the story goes, the Bible tells us that there are 700 wives that Solomon collects for himself, princesses and 300 concubines, and he clings to them in love, marries to gain political alliances. As promised, they turn his heart away, and he goes after other gods. Concerning gold, wisdom was with him to do justice for God's glory and God's kingdom, but we see in 1023 in 1 Kings that he used it to acquire gold for his glory. And who do we talk about when we talk about Solomon? Like, I just picture he was cool, all right? And we talk about him because he, look at what God gave him. It's pretty incredible. And I can't really judge because if God gave me all that, I'd probably 
I don't know, I've done the same thing. But, uh, but the point is, is that he knew better, and it was meant to bring justice to the nations, but he took it to himself. He covets this, and concerning the Gideap, 1,400 chariots, 1,200 horsemen imported from Egypt, the place he was not, he was told never to go back to. Don't go back there to get military strength. Sure enough, he does it. The significance of this is that all, every single one of Deuteronomy 17 rules are broken. The most shocking of all is that the true king is supposed to rid Israel of idols. The king is to be shepherding his people, and he builds temples to them instead. You might think, no big deal. He had girls. He had a bunch of horses. The big deal is that the covenant, the covenant is broken. They have abandoned true worship of the one true God. So remember that part of the Davidic covenant is that God is going to discipline his disobedient king, and this is what we are about to see happen. It tells us that the Lord is angry with Solomon in 11, 9, 1 Kings. Since this has been your practice, so you didn't just do it once, and you've not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and I am going to give it to your servants. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. He is going to keep his promise to David. God providing a seed of David is not dependent on man's obedience. I want you to understand that the judgment and the reason that this is going to be so severe and everything that comes as a result of this is that covenant has been broken. So God is going to split the kingdom after his death and we are going to see the results of Solomon's fall being tragic and it is going to set an entire nation on a course toward destruction. And I want you to remember this phrase, that as the king goes, so goes the nation. So now we're going to speed up this narrative. Um, and Katie gave you guys these really fabulous, um, did you all get a copy of these right here? Okay. Um, so we're going to have, uh, have this character named Jerobo- Jeroboam. And you remember just a moment ago how uh, Solomon, or God speaks to Solomon, and, and God says, I'm going to give, tear apart your kingdom, I'm going to give it to your servant. This is the servant, all right? So a few things about Jeroboam. He is a, we're told that he is a mighty man of valor and he's d- industrious. Uh, and so Solomon is going to put him in charge of forced labor, all right? And then this prophet comes and he appears to Jeroboam and he tells him that, he tells him what he's going to do. He's going to say, God's going to tear the kingdom from Solomon and he's going to give you 10 tribes. That's pretty awesome. Uh, but one is going to stay for the sake of David, my servant, and may, that he may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem. And then God says, if you will listen to me and obey me like my servant David did, I will be with you and I will build you a sure house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you. Wow, that's a big deal. So Solomon's going to reign for 40 years. He dies and Rehoboam is going to reign in this place. Now, I just said Jeroboam. Now we have Rehoboam. Um, to keep this clear, when, you know, when I picture Solomon, I picture like uh, all this, uh, you know, like gold, and he sits in the temple, and I just picture like it's extravagant. I picture these rays coming off of him. So picture Rehoboam as his son, so picture rays. Does that help you? Because it totally helped me. All right. Um, now, Rehoboam comes along. He's his son, and Solomon had put a heavy yoke on the people to do everything he wanted them to do, and Rehoboam's going to come, and he's going to increase that yoke. The people, the Israelites, they're not made for slavery. They're going to hate this, and they reject it. And so what we're told is that they 
basically go into rebellion against Rehoboam, uh, Solomon's son, and they say, we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse, which means we don't care about David's house, we don't care about the promises, we don't want them. They go find Jeroboam, as prophesied, and they go into rebellion, and they, they go back to their tribes, okay? And this splits the kingdom, all right? So right now we are in Jerusalem, which is in the south. Jerusalem is it's the capital, and then we have the southern tribe, or the, or the north, so we're in the south, and then the northern tribes is going to be called Israel. Israel is still in Judah, but for the sake of where we're going, we're going to call Judah, which is still Israel, the, the, the south, and the north is going to be Israel, and the, the capital of Israel is going to be Samaria, um, and the tribe of Judah is the only one that stays, so, so ten tribes go north, um, and this is significant because the seed is going to come through the line of what? Judah. So we are watching that south kingdom to make sure that that seed remains, all right? So Rehoboam reigns over the people of Israel who live in the cities of Judah, and he does evil in the eyes of the Lord. Remember, kings make Israel to sin when they sin, and the nation is going to follow after him. So Jeroboam is king over all Israel, ten tribes in the north. Jeroboam fears that if Israelites go to Jerusalem, they're going to kill him, and they're going to go back to Rehoboam. So he's scared, so he says, okay, um, I'm gonna, he sets up these uh, two golden calves in, in uh, Bethel and in Dan, and he says, Behold, Israel, here are your gods that brought you out of Egypt. Is that shocking? Wow. And so God sees this, and he says, Because I exalted you, and I made you king, and you have done evil above all who were before you, provoking me to anger, I'm going to reject you, I'm going to give up Israel because of your sin. Jeroboam is going to die with Israel falling, following in his steps. Then we have the rest of the kings, all right? So this is, uh, I really appreciate the authors here because they made this pretty clear to understand, believe it or not, which is helpful to me because I get so confused, especially on the Star Wars trilogies, um, I, like the, the, the men in the white suits that have the hard thing on, I still could not tell you if they're good or bad. I, I've seen all six, I'm still confused, um, but that is my reality, and you know, then they're all like, who's good? You know, so confusing. Um, so in the north, the capital is Samaria. There's going to be 20 kings that are going to come from there, including uh, Jeroboam. Um, and then we have uh, 10 tribes, and it's going to tell us whether they walk in the ways of Jeroboam. All right, so that's how it's gonna, they're going to identify them. In the south, we have Judah, thank Jesus. The capital is Jerusalem. We have 20 kings. There are one, two tribes. It's really Judah, also Benjamin, but they're kind of smaller, and Judah dwarfs them. And the scripture is going to tell us, do they walk in the ways of David? Okay, so it's a different way of differentiating the two. Um, it's also going to tell us where they reigned in Israel or in Judah in relation to other kings and how long. And then, like I said, it's going to tell us if they're good or bad. Thank you so much. So helpful. Um, and God is going to judge them based on whether they worship the God of Israel alone, do they rid Israel of idolatry, and basic, do they keep the Mosaic Covenant. All right? Um, and in the meantime, while all this is going on, we have these prophets. All right? I love the prophets. I just, I, I, their characters just, um, I think they reveal so much about God and his heart. So in Judges, the pattern was that when the people rebelled, that God sent an adversary, they complained, he rages up a judge to deliver them. In Kings, our pattern is that when the king or the people rebel, God raises a prophet to warn the people of judgment, um, and then the prophetic words come true, all right? Both 
these are evidence that God has not given up on Israel, all right? Um, three things to remember about the prophets is that they're, they're covenant watchdogs, all right? God has put his covenants there, and they're going to call out idolatry. They're going to warn of judgment and consequences of covenant failure, all right? And then they're, they're God's spokespeople. They get to tell everybody what God is saying. When they spoke, it's the same as if God spoke. And then finally, they're going to show us God's heart. They're going to show us a heart of father who wants to bless Israel, that he's merciful, that he wants to prevent judgment, that he's willing to discipline them in order to bring them home. I point this out first because it's in this light that we need to understand the miracles, all right? Because the miracles are extravagant. And if we just read Kings, really, we'd just be tempted to read about these awesome miracles, like when Elijah, uh, he's, he's dead in the ground, and a person comes to be buried there, and he resurrects from life, and they... Uh, they also get to part the Jordan, and there's a, they uh, uh, calls down fire from heaven. They're caught up in a whirlwind. I mean, they're pretty extravagant, okay? But here's what I want you to understand about the miracles. The point isn't the miracles. The point is that through the miracles, God is affirming his ministry through the prophets. He's basically saying, look, they, they know I am with them. Listen to them. Everyone's probably talking about these miracles. Everyone is talking about what's happening. And so they're also listening to what they have to say. And they are, they are making sure that no one misses that Israel is, is sinning. And this is bad. And that's what they're saying. So that is the point of the prophets. And they're going to come and confront the kings continuously, give prophecies. Something very quickly that's interesting is that Elijah does seven miracles. I guess 14 if you include the prophecies. Elijah comes along and, and asks for double portion. And God gives it to him, and the author even points out that he does uh, exactly, so it, it counts his miracles as 14, 28, if you can include, so exactly a double portion. It exactly doubles the number of miracles that Elijah does, all right? So that's just something kind of neat. Let's return to the kings. So in the north, this is Israel, after Jeroboam, every single king does what is evil in the sight of the Lord and walks in the ways of Jeroboam and in the sin which he made Israel to sin. Every single king becomes guilty of covenant unfaithfulness and continues to lead the nation in idolatrous worship of other gods. Ahab, being the most evil of all, as if it had been a light thing to walk in the ways of Jeroboam. He's the one that marries Jezebel. Elijah is the one that interacts with him. We have the awesome thing where the water comes down, or the fire comes down from heaven and sucks up the water, and he kills all the, uh, all the, all the false prophets. It's kind of cool. Um, and remember, as goes the king, so goes the people. The people of Israel walk in all the sins that Jeroboam does. The story of Israel's destruction is going to speed up after Jehu is king. Injustice, coups, conspiracies, assassinations continue. There is a bloody revolution. Violence gets out of control, and Israel never recovers. Something that happens in the midst of the story that I told super fast is that God actually waited for 200 years for them to repent. In the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel in 723 B.C., the king of Assyria captures Samaria, that is the capital of Israel, and carries the Israelites into captivity. 2 Kings 18.12 tells us that this happened specifically because they transgressed God's covenant, even all that Moses commanded. 
So now Israel, the north, is gone. In the south, we have Judah remaining. Remember, this is, uh, the, this is where the seed is going to come through Judah, as promised to David. So as Samaria is being taken away, at the, the final it ends, uh, Hezekiah is king in Judah. Hezekiah does what is right before the Lord, according to all that David has done. He removes the high places, and in doing so, he delays God's judgment. And there's really some, some significant things that happened during this period um, that uh, we will return to later, and I'll have Katie explain to you that were really neat and blowing my mind. Um, uh, so just pay attention to that. But uh, Isaiah is going to be the prophet during this time, and we start on him next week, so I wanted to point that out. Um, and Isaiah prophets him when the com- uh, king of Assyria comes and taunts him, and, uh, and God proves his faithfulness to Hezekiah because he wipes out 185,000 of the Assyrians and just showing that, hey, I was willing all this time to protect you if you were just willing to obey and love me uh, like Hezekiah does. But then Hezekiah asks as a prayer to live a little bit longer, and along comes his song Manasseh. And we are told that his reign in Judah, uh, that he is, he is even uh, more evil than any that lived before him. In fact, he seduces Israel or Judah, to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord has destroyed before the children of Israel. What we need to know about him is that he rebuilds the high places that his father destroyed. He builds altars for foreign gods in the house of the Lord, in the temple, all right? He shed so much blood in, in Judah that he, until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other, he makes his son to pass through fire, and God is not going to pardon this. So God speaks to the prophets and says, because he has broken covenant and led Judah to sin, behold, I'm bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, and I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hands of their enemies. Here, judgment is set. And I want you to know, uh, it didn't say this in Kings, and Katie reminded me that uh, in Chronicles, we're going to read that Manasseh actually repents. Um, th- that's profound. It shows that God, all along, his heart is still mercy. He is still with them, waiting on them, calling them to repentance. Am- Ammon is going to come in after him. He's going to walk in the ways of Manasseh, and then we have Josiah. Josiah, we are told, does what is right in the eyes of the Lord. He tears down all the high places, repairs the temple from what uh, Manasseh had done, and he is even going to reinstate the Passover. So during the repairs of the temple, a priest is digging around in the temple, and he finds a book of the law. When he hears the words, we are told that he tears his clothes. He says, great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. Remember, what were they supposed to be doing all along? They were to copy, read, and carry this. The king shall write for himself a copy of this book, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. They should have been doing this all along. It could have protected them. So important is the word of God that the law had been lost. This just shows how far they'd gone. They didn't even know it was there. So after the temple is repaired, all Israel gathers together, And the book of the law is read to them. They renew their covenant before the Lord. It is said of Josiah that before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, 
according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Nevertheless, because of the sins of Manasseh, judgment is set. Three more kings are going to come in, and they're going to do what's evil. And in the end, Judah is going to last almost two times as long as Israel. Out of 20 kings, only eight kings do good. Only two, Hezekiah and Josiah, are given unqualified praise. And finally, in 586 B.C., the southern kingdom, Judah, falls. This is going to climax, okay? Just like we began in Jerusalem. We're back there again, aren't we? King Nebuchadnezzar is going to come in, king of Babylon. He comes up to Jerusalem. And, you know, this part of scripture, when, when you're reading in Kings, it, just, it grips you because it, it's not just like all of a sudden they come and take the temple, but it gives this elaborate description of what they're specifically doing the temple. As if they're just, they're just being desecrated again. We are told that he cuts the vessels of God that Solomon made. He carries the people away and the kings of Babylon. The walls of Jerusalem, the house of the king, and the temple itself are destroyed, just as God warned Solomon. If you and your children turn aside, I will cut off Israel from the land, and this house will become a heap of ruins. I think it's interesting that at this point in scripture, they're not using the temple as much to describe it. They're calling it the actual house of the Lord, as if to say that his house, God is no longer with them. What God has done is he has just cast Israel out of his presence. And most shocking of all is that the remnant that is left, there's a small remnant left, and they return to Egypt. In the beginning, we began in Jerusalem. It was big and great. In the end, we end in Jerusalem with its fall and destruction. In the beginning, when we started kings, they had land blessing safety. The priest had the law. There was a permanent temple, permanent, where God's presence dwelled. And by the end, they experienced the loss of these things and their freedom. They were slaves to sin, sin, slaves again to the nations. No priest. The book of the law is lost with no place to worship, signifying God's rejection. The best lens to look through what has just happened is through the lens of the covenant. Through the... Abrahamic covenant, first and second kings, shows the potential of Israel blessing the nations through the reign of Solomon. It is a glimpse of what it will look like when God fulfills his promise made to Abraham. Through the lens of the Mosaic covenant, we see in first and second kings that through the kings by which God is going to establish Israel, they actually lead the people in breaking the Mosaic covenant. It is the sustained failure of the kings and the people that brings about their ruin. Therefore, God gives them all that he promised in that same covenant, and by doing so, he is actually faithful to the Mosaic covenant by sending them into exile. It is through the lens of the Mosaic covenant that the author shows, and this is possibly the main point that this book was written, is that Israel's exile is justified. This book actually shows how patient God is, waiting generation after generation and enduring centuries of idolatry and disloyalty. And then we have uh, the Davidic covenant. And here's where we have hope. Despite the nation's failure to keep the Mosaic law, God was faithful to keep his promise to David to always provide an heir. In the north, in Israel, when the kings sinned, God cuts off their house and the descendants as part of the curse. 
or as part of the judgment, but not so in Judah. In Judah, God preserves David's dynasty throughout all 20 kings. Those kings get sick, assassinated, or attacked, but the line is never cut off. But for David's sake, Davidic house always produces an heir. So Kings is written for those in exile to know that the fault is not with God, but it's with the peoples. And even in exile, they had hope because God had told them in Deuteronomy, and you remember, you know our, um, our verse, if you go into exile, I will bring you back. And God had still promised to provide an heir. In the words of Donald Fowler and Jason Derushi, God's kingdom story is not over. Out of the depths, God would act to fulfill his past promises originally given to Moses in Deuteronomy, that's 31 through 10, our memory, and reaffirmed to David in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. The final episode of 1 Kings highlights again that not all David's relatives are dead. One of the kings that they sent into exile, King Jehoiakim, who was Judah's last Davidic monarch, is released from Babylonian prison and given a place of honor in Babylon. In 1 Kings, God promised that although he would afflict the offspring of men, he would not do so forever. God is faithful, and he remains, and hope remains for the greater son of David to rise to power. God had told David in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. My steadfast love will not depart from him, and your kingdom shall be established forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So what encouragement can we get from the book of Kings? We know how the story ends. Christ inaugurates his kingdom when he died and when he resurrected. As our perfect high priest, he offered himself as a sacrifice and he mediates now. As a prophet, his word is in our hands and he warned of a final judgment that would be eternal. As he revealed himself to Joshua, he is the captain of the Lord's army and he will gain victory over his enemies and rule forever. As a victorious king like we saw in David, he will unify all tribes and nations and shepherd us, his people, that he died to save. And as Solomon showed us, there will be a united kingdom of greater glory where God's presence is constant. And the peace and rest that Israel had when we started kings will be eternal among all the nations. In the meantime, we are given every single thing that we need to know to obey to make us ready for his return as his bride. That is us if we are in Christ. And so my final question to us is that he is Lord and King. He is now. Is he Lord and King of our hearts? We know if he is, if, if he rules there. And how do we know if he's ruling? When we open the words of scripture and we read those words, do we bow? Do we take our thoughts captive? Do we throw off sin as one standing before his throne, fearing, worshiping, and honoring him? I just thought uh, we could close by saying the Our Father together, because I thought that, okay. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, the kingdom come.